Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Uh, I'm going to real quickly introduce myself. Uh, like Spencer said, uh, my name is Cam Brown. I am the RUF uh, campus minister at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with what RUF is, uh, it stands for Reformed University Fellowship, and we are the uh, official college ministry of this denomination. And so what we do is we send ordained pastors to the campus in order to reach students for Christ and equip them to serve. Uh, I'll kind of share briefly uh, the way that I talk to my students each week who we are. So RUF is a community of students made up of uh, anywhere between skeptics to believers who are trying to ask the central question, uh, who is Jesus? And fundamentally what we believe is that Jesus is the very embodiment of love. And so what we do is we meet, we meet together weekly, one-on-one -on -one in small groups and in a large group setting in order to remind one another of Christ's love for us and be conformed to it. And so that's what we're doing. Uh, and the mission of RUF really is this simple. I want, uh, through the ministry of RUF, for students to love Jesus and love his church for a lifetime. And so that means we have more than just the four years of college in mind. We want students when they're 60 to love Jesus and love his church. We want students when they're 65 to love Jesus and love his church and so on and so forth. Um, uh, and God is at work on the campus. My wife Ray and I moved to Madison back in June. Uh, we graduated from seminary before that. Uh, and we are encouraged uh, by the ways in which God is teaching us. Um, to love his people through that time, uh, but also the ways in which students are hearing the gospel for the first time, learning the scriptures for the first time, and growing in grace. Uh, and what I wanted to just do before we dive into the text today uh, is just thank you. Uh, this work is possible because of the support of individuals and churches like yourself. Uh, so thank you for your prayer. Uh, thank you for your giving. Um, I'm really thankful for that. You find in your bulletin a link to uh, our website. If you're interested in hearing more, uh, feel free to explore there or talk to me uh, after the service about ways you can continue to partner and pray for us. Um, also, just give a quick plug. If you are a high school student who is interested in UW, I would love to meet you and talk with you. Uh, if you're going to do your college tours, I'd love to buy you Chipotle and give you a tour of the campus. That'd be fun for me. Uh, so uh, just connect with me after the service, and I'd love to hang out. Um, so uh, I've entitled this sermon, we're going to be in Mark chapter 4, uh, Seeds Get Degrees, which I know is like super catchy. Uh, but in my context, working with college students, one of the central questions that they're asking is, how do I know I'm in? How do I belong? And at UW, the classic phrase, seeds get degrees, is actually very countercultural. Because belonging, at least in that context, is achieved through academic success. It's about being an A student and an A socialite. And for that reason, the gospel is very countercultural because what we see in Jesus is that he shows us that we're brought into his kingdom, not because of what we achieve, but because of his grace. And further, it is his grace that changes us. And here in this passage, which we'll dive into uh, in a second, the crowd is also asking this question, who's in, who's out? How can we be changed? 
And if you're new to the Gospel of Mark or the Bible in general, this crowd is gathered from all over to hear Jesus teach. They've traveled because they want to hear this man who speaks, as we see in Mark 127, with such authority. They want to see this man who's healed the sick. They want to see this man who even in Mark 2.5 forgives sins. See, this is a man who seems to have the authority to shed light on the question, how can we be changed? And this crowd also has questions, uh, which, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, we have as well, about what it means to be changed, because Jesus has started his ministry so far in this gospel in very unexpected ways. See, in that time, there's this religious group called the Pharisees, who were kind of the teachers and uh, movers of the day. And yet Jesus often challenged these leaders in the beginning of Mark's gospel. And he even picked his, uh, his disciples, not as Pharisees, but as fishermen. And then he began his ministry by going to the poor and to the sick and to the marginalized and bringing them into his kingdom, which was not expected by many. And this ruffled many feathers. Even his family, before this passage that we'll read today, must have had questions uh, at the end of Mark chapter 3, they uh, go to find him in the temple, and he responds with this perplexing statement, uh, basically saying that his family is not bound by blood, but he says, those who seek the will of God. It's very perplexing. And so Jesus' ministry started as uh, unexpected by many people. And once again, the crowd was mixed with people who denied this Jesus who were just, or who were just curious, asking the question, how can I be changed? How do I get in? And what we will find in this gospel is that Jesus gives us a much more life-changing answer than the message of C's don't get degrees or don't try too hard. Rather, his countercultural answer is to respond with a parable about sowing seeds. It's in the metaphor of the seed that is the secret to gospel change. So let's pray real quick and we'll dive in. Lord, um, thank you uh, for bringing us here today. Thank you for the opportunity to gather before your word and be encouraged. Uh, we confess that many of us come and walk in these doors from different places. Uh, some of our hearts are uh, filled with uh, questions and, and curiosity, even skepticism. Other of our hearts are weary. Uh, we are uh, weary from labors of a long week, uh, asking questions uh, and needing you to embolden our hearts. Uh, others of us are excited to be here, excited to worship. Uh, no matter how we gather today, we pray that your spirit would be at work. God, would you speak not through my words, but through your word? Would your spirit be at work uh, and communicate to us the message that you would have us here? Lose all these things in your name. Amen. Uh, so we're going to be in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, feel free to turn there or you can just listen. So Mark 4, chapter 1 through 20. Again he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. And other seed fell on rocky grounds, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. And other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. 
But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you not understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And, the, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us because he loves us. Uh, if you are new uh, to the scriptures and new to this word parable, uh, here's what a parable is. One uh, theologian, C.H. Dodd, defines it this way. I think it's really helpful. He says, at its simplest, the parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. What's unique about this parable is that Jesus here, unlike other places, actually tells us the purpose of the parable in verses 10 through 20. But it would have still been puzzling to his disciples, this purpose he tells them. In verse 14, he tells us that the sower sows the word. And this means that the sower is God and the word is the gospel. See, in John 1, we're told that Jesus is the word. And so here, the seed of, is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So whether you're exploring Christianity for the first time today, or you've grown up in the church and heard the gospel story what feels like a million times, the key to this question of how we can be changed is through the gospel. It's in the person of Jesus. And in this crowd, many people will actually not be changed. They will deny Jesus and the gospel. And this is why the gospel is likened to a seed and why the parable is concerned with how it takes root and whether it will be changed from a seed into a rooted plant. And so if we are to be changed, we must learn to Jesus the answer to these questions. First, what kind of change does the gospel have the power to bring? Second, how does it change us? And finally, how is its power to change unlike anything else? See, the big idea is that we can be changed because the gospel is like a seed. And here's how the parable answers these previous questions and the main points we'll speak about today, uh, which takes heavily from a pastor named Tim Keller who says it better than I can uh, word myself. But here are our points. So first, the gospel, like a seed, has power. Second, the gospel grows deep from the heart as a seed grows when its roots are deep. And finally, the weakness of the gospel is the secret of its power. So first, the gospel, like a seed, has power. We see this in the beginning in, in verse 3 and verse 14. See, we see that the seed is planted by a sower. But this is no normal farmer. The seed is actually planted by a powerful sower. It's actually the creator and sustainer of all things. And he spreads the seed everywhere. No place is untouched. But this sower, it, we see in this parable that the, it, the seed also has the power to create, as we see in verse 8 especially. See, the seed springs up on the rocky ground in verse 5, even though it does not have proper roots. And it even springs up amongst the thorns in verse 7, even though the thorns choke it. And it certainly grows and produces an abundant harvest in verse 8. 
And throughout the scriptures, we see that God's word actually has great power. This is why in Genesis 1, we see that the world is actually created by the the word of his power. And the power of the gospel is not just creative, but it's recreative. This is why if we were to move to the book of James, in James 1.18, he says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. And this word in Greek of bring forth is about giving birth. See, more literally, he gave birth to us again. James even references the new life of a Christian that is created by the word to a firstfruit. That is a seed that grew into a plant and bore fruit. In 1 Peter 1 and in Jesus' conversation with a man named Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he says that the gospel has the power to give us a new birth, to be born again. So the, boss, the gospel is not only creative, but it's recreative. And we know this from the, parable, or the metaphor of a seed because the seed is the power to create life. They grow into plants and trees, and those plants even produce seeds that create more life. And similarly, the word has the, has the power to create new life. But what kind of power is this? Well, it's the power, as we see in verse 20, for spiritual life. You, you know if you've planted anything that you can't just plant anything. You need a seed. You can't stick a nail in the ground and expect something to, to grow. It might rust, but that's about it. As I think about uh, the power of what a seed creates, what we plant, what it brings about, I think of, uh, I'm a big fan of The Office. You may or may not be, but there's an episode uh, in The Office uh, where uh, two characters, Dwight and Jim, uh, they're participating in a company garage sale. They're trying to raise money for their company. And what Dwight decides he's going to use this time for is to haggle. And so he goes about and he exchanges items for better items. But what Jim decides to use this time for is to convince Dwight that his packet of Professor Copperfield's miracle seeds are going to produce a miraculous crop. And so the the punchline is at the end of the episode, Dwight exchanges an expensive telescope for this little packet of seeds. But the punchline is that these seeds did not have the power to create what Jim promised. So see, the kind of creative power matters. And what we see is that seeds have the power to create biological life, but the word, the gospel, has the power to create spiritual life. This is the new birth those passages we read about uh, previously talk about. And this is why Jesus here in verse 11 talks about the secret of the kingdom of God. See, eternal life is what is in store here. And being called into the kingdom of God not only changes our destination, where we are bound towards heaven as a people, but also changes us now because it gives us spiritual life. If you're not a Christian here today, the kingdom of God, heaven and hell, the grace of Christ, his death and resurrection, and his promise to return and bring justice in a new order are all probably not real to you at this moment. They're probably an interesting concept. But what happens when the word takes hold of us and we believe in Christ is that our eyes are changed to recognize these things as the reality. They become real, and this changes us. See, it's not just that the gospel has power, but as we see in Romans 1.16, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's actually that the gospel is the power. It is the power for spiritual life. It is how we can be changed and how we become members of the kingdom. And so what does it mean for us that the gospel has the power of a seed? Well, first it means that we can actually be changed. Some of us enter today uh, wondering if this change is really possible. 
we might feel that if uh, God actually knew our hearts deeply, he could not possibly accept us to be a part of this kingdom. We might believe that his grace cannot possibly cover our sin. But what we see here is that although we do not deserve this, Jesus in his grace gives us a more powerful gospel than we can imagine. Or some some others of us may struggle to believe this because we are just weary. We find ourselves back in the same patterns in our pursuit of holiness. It all just feels futile. Well, although Jesus works on our hearts gradually and we do falter, the gospel really is that powerful to bring change. And so what would it look like in your life to know that the gospel is real and that it is powerful? I'll give you one example. How do you encounter and face criticism? How would it actually change us to know that you, if you were in Christ, have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb and that this was not because of our righteousness, but because of the grace of God and Jesus? This would actually change our posture. It would remove us from defensiveness to humility because we know both that we have nothing to prove. Christ has already done it for us and we are also not faultless. The gospel changes us. The gospel, like a seed, has the power to create. In fact, it has the power for spiritual life and it changes us. But the second point, uh, the question is, how does that change happen? And what we see is that the gospel grows deep from the heart as a seed grows when its roots are deep. And we see this in verses 10 through 20 in Jesus's purpose. Uh, What we see is uh, that as noted by one pastor, the gospel creates organic growth, not mechanical growth. See, organic growth happens from the inside out. A seed grows root in the soil and the plant grows out from these roots. Seeds release their power by going in deep. And similarly, the gospel changes us by affecting our hearts. And this is why Jesus begins his explanation and the purpose of his parables uh, to his disciples by quoting Isaiah chapter six in Mark 4, 12. As you read that, you might've found that confusing. See, for some of us, Jesus's words might feel perplexing. This is not Jesus, however, making some sort of inside joke at the expense of others in the crowd who he says can hear but not understand. So what is he doing here? Why does Jesus quote Isaiah 6? Well, rather he is using uh, this language as a prophetic instrument of warning and challenge because some people in this crowd want Jesus's miracles, but they don't want Jesus. Jesus's proclamation still expects and seeks some people from this message to hear him and follow him. But like the prophets known in the Old Testament, not everyone who hears God's word will repent and follow him. And this is why he quotes Isaiah 6, 9, because as one commentator says, Isaiah 6, 9 becomes the classic expression of hardness of heart. Isaiah 6, 9 becomes the classic expression of hardness of heart. See, Jesus is saying that gospel change happens at the heart level, just like the seed grows in the soil. As one pastor, Kevin DeYoung, is really helpful here, he categorizes the soils into four different kinds of hearts. He says the indifferent heart, the superficial heart, the distracted heart, and the acceptive heart. So let's walk through those quickly. So first we see the indifferent heart, and that's in verse 4 and verse 15. And this first kind of heart that Jesus speaks about are those who have a hard heart. We see this in verse four, where the seed is thrown on the path. And Jesus explains in verse 15 that they hear the word, uh, but it's just taken away. A seed doesn't grow on concrete. And neither does gospel change happen from indifference or hardness. See, what we believe is that gospel love is what changes us. 
And some of you here might have seen the movie Cars, if you remember that animated movie. And there's this part where one of two of the main characters, McQueen and Sally, are driving. And McQueen asks this, the question to Sally, how did you change? How did that happen? Well, her answer is, I fell in love. See, love is what changes us. It's Jesus' love for us. And an indifferent heart cannot be moved it cannot be motivated by love. This is why the writer and Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel says the opposite of love is not hatred, it is indifference. How many of us, for instance, are changed by things we do not care about, right? I don't know about you, but I am not changed by email spam. Like that folder exists for a reason and I don't check it. I don't believe that it matters. And when I pick out the mail, we've been recently getting a lot of uh, uh, I don't know how to say this, uh, letters from Comcast or Spectrum about their new plans. Uh, what do I do when I take that mail and I bring it inside and my wife Ray asks me, did we get any mail today? I say nothing and I throw it away because I don't believe that that mail matters. That can't change me, it can't move me or motivate me. See, the indifferent heart like the path is not interested in this Jesus. They might not even be interested in the Bible. It sounds like a waste of our time. But second, we see the superficial heart. And this is in verse five through six and 16 through 17. See, this is the seed that falls on rocky ground, but it does not have depth. It springs up, but when the sun comes, it withers away. And as we see in verse 17, this is about those who fall away when persecution arises. Within this crowd, as I said earlier, there were likely those who were excited about the prospect of Jesus's miracles, but they were not excited about Jesus. They certainly weren't excited about what he says later in the Gospels, that to follow him is to bear a cross. And on the campus, I see this a lot in students who may have had a really high mountaintop experience at a camp or a missions trip, which is all very good things. But this honesty about their struggle, that when they feel the same high, they question the validity of their faith. What happens when I'm not feeling that great? Well, Jesus here is pointing us to the importance of rootedness. And this is one reason why involvement and love for the local church is so important, because we need each other. One uh, pastor puts it this way, we need to relearn the discipline of being bored for Jesus. <laughs> and this doesn't mean that Jesus is an indifferent matter, but that he is Lord of the ordinary, or even that there is great beauty in how he works in our ordinary lives. One author, Tish Warren, in her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, is really helpful here. She says, how should we respond when we find the word perplexing or even dry? We keep eating, we receive nourishment, we keep listening and learning and taking our daily bread. We wait on God to give us what we need to sustain us one more day. We acknowledge that there is far more wonder in this life of worship than we yet have eyes to see or stomachs to digest. We receive what has been set before us today as a gift. And so what does that mean for us, for those who struggle with superficial hearts? Well, it means that we don't actually do anyone favors in the church by acting like Christianity is an easy life. Or we don't do anyone favors by forgetting to speak and share about the extraordinary ways which God is at work in our ordinary lives. As we raise our kids, do our ordinary jobs, and live in our ordinary communities. Gospel change happens powerfully, but it often, ha often happens in our ordinary lives. Third, we see the distracted heart in verse 7 and 18 through 19. And this heart is represented in verse 7 as the seed planted amongst the thorns. 
Here's how one author summarizes Jesus' explanation in verses 18 through 19. The seed cast in the thorns represents the one who hears the kingdom news, but are overwhelmed with worries about all the things they have to do and all the things they want to get. The stress strangles what they heard, and nothing comes of it. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, this is the, uh, the heart that tempts us most in the West and in the United States. How does our worry, busyness, and desire for stuff hinder gospel fruit? How often do we neglect the word, prayer, and our relationship with Jesus because our busyness is what is always of first importance? Or how often are we tempted by the deceitfulness of riches? It's important to say Jesus does not despise wealth. In fact, it was the generosity of people with great resources, like Priscilla and the book of Acts, who were essential in the growth of the early church. But rather, Jesus is cautioning us that a heart distracted by wealth is preoccupied by the pursuit of it. Wealth does not ultimately last, and it can turn our eyes from Jesus. And so the question is, does wealth drive you? Do you find yourself motivated by it rather than the gospel, which sometimes calls us to a life that is not always about the bottom line? What drives us? And the last heart that Jesus talks about is the acceptive heart in verse 8 and 20. See, Jesus explains in verse 20 that the acceptive heart not only hears the word, but accepts it and bears an exceptional harvest. Good Good seed grown into good soil will grow into a good tree and bear good fruit. See, gospel change happens through gospel power, but it doesn't happen without us. Rather, it happens when our hearts, opened by the work of God's spirit, consume the word deeply, and there, seeds release their power by going in deep. So gospel change happens deeply in our hearts, and that requires us to develop accepting hearts rather than indifferent, superficial, or distracted hearts. But how is this power of the gospel unlike anything else? We see this in our final point, that the weakness of the gospel is the secret of its power. See, there's a great paradox of the seed. If you guys were asked, I want you to create a metaphor to talk about the power of something, you probably wouldn't choose a seed. You might choose fire, you might choose a sword, and there are even other places in scripture where God likens uh, the word to these things. In Hebrews chapter 4, God says that the word is as sharp as a double-edged sword. So why here in this text, in this parable, is the gospel likened to a seed? See, seeds have a paradoxical weakness and strength. A seed can be eaten by a bird, it can be gathered by squirrels, it can be thrown into a salad bowl, and it can even be crushed on our feet as we go for a run. Yet a seed also can grow into a giant tree and live for centuries. I think about this, uh, this paradox when I think about a plant that Ray and I recently put into our house. Uh, so we have this sort of vine-like plant, and it was very small, so we put it in a mug and planted it in soil. But a couple months ago, we heard this crack in our house. And when we turned, we saw that the mug had literally broken because the root had grown too strong for it. That's why if you visit a graveyard, you might find sometimes that uh, it's possible for a cemetery um, tombstone to be cracked by the growing of of a tree. See, these seeds, although small, have great power. And the gospel is also paradoxical. To some, it may appear weak and even foolish. 
As we saw, it was rejected by three kinds of soil. The first doesn't like it at all. The second just wants miracles and their needs to be met, but they don't want this Jesus. And the third is concerned about what the world thinks and the issues of the world. But these three hearts in Jesus' parable are not just responses to his word. They're responses to Jesus. See, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came like a seed. He is a humble king. He rides in in the triumphal memory on a donkey, not a horse. He washes his disciples' feet. He became weak. He became man. He lived on the generosity of other people throughout his ministry. He died so that we could have life. The power of God's word is the weakness of the Lord. It is his willingness to be the ultimate seed. This is why uh, one writer says this about parables. He says, parables cannot be understood apart from the one who tells them. Parables are not simply good advice, they are good news. And the good news is that the sower is God and the word is Jesus. Jesus is announcing the good news of gospel change. And so let us not be deceived by indifferent, distracted, or superficial hearts, uh, but turn to him and his gospel love, because in him is true blessing. This is why uh, verses 8 and 20 talk about the yield of the crop being a uh, hundredfold. In this, in this time period, a good agricultural yield was between fivefold to fifteenfold. And yet what we see in the power of this gospel is that it can yield up to a hundredfold. This is the gospel blessing. And so as we begin to wrap up, what is the secret to gospel change? Elsewhere, Jesus answers this question as well in John chapter 15 by giving us another agricultural metaphor. He there reveals himself as the true vine, and he tells us that we are the branches. He therefore says in John 15, 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branches cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And so gospel chain requires that we attach ourselves to Jesus, this humble king who became weak so that he could manifest his power for us on the cross. And so let's abide in him. What would it look like to see him as he is so that we might be changed? Uh, to end, this is an illustration given by uh, one of my former bosses named Michael Gordon, who's a pastor with RUF. He says this, I want to tell you a story three times, and each time I'm going to change a fact. Imagine that you are stuck in traffic. You're in the right lane, and there are cars to the left at a standstill as well. It's winter, and it's snowing. And to your right is the Potomac River, and it is partially frozen. Large chunks of ice are floating down it. And you look over to your left, and you see a guy undo his seatbelt, get out of the car, and jump in the river and drown. What do you think about him? You probably think he's a little bit nuts, right? Now let me add a fact. Moments earlier, an Air Florida jet taking off from Dulles International Airport has crashed into the river. The water is filled with survivors whose bodies are freezing and whose eyes are blinded by an airplane full in the water. They can't see the rescue ropes being thrown to them. They don't even have the strength to grab a hold. And this man, Lenny Skutnik, runs, jumps in the water, and rescues others. If it came at the cost of his life, now would you, what would you think of him? He's probably a hero, right? He's someone you respect. Maybe his example makes you evaluate your own life. Why did I stay in the car? Maybe it inspires you to be more sacrificial. This is often how we think about Jesus, but let me add one more fact. 
What if you're not even in the car, but you're in the water? What if it's your body cramping with colds? What if your hand is the one that is too weak to grab a hold of the rope? And this man, Lenny Skutnik, jumps in the water to rescue you. Now what would you think of him? He is your savior. You're going to want to know him. You're going to want to know his family. You're going to want to find a way to express your thanks and gratitude. You're going to want to learn from him. And when you see yourself in the water, it changes everything about how you see and relate to this Jesus. See, when we see Jesus for who he truly is, the ultimate seed, a humble king who died for us, it changes everything. It gives us the power of spiritual life, which changes not only our destination as a people bound for heaven, but it also changes us now to be a people motivated by his love, his meekness, his justice, his holiness, his perspective, and more. And this is good news, friends. Let's pray that God might help us. God, we are thankful uh, for your word. Thank you uh, that it is absolutely true and it's given to us because you love us. As we turn to this time where we come to your table, uh, God, we pray that you would nourish us. For those of us who are weary, would you remind us uh, that you are the one who sustains us. God, uh, for those of us who do not know you, uh, would you plant a seed in our hearts? Would you convince us that you are the great seed and that that is a good gift? Uh, God, conform us to learn from your death and resurrection as we were reminded of what you did for us.